Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Reminding from Ephesians 1 this morning that we are saved, we're adopted, we're redeemed to the praise of your glorious grace. All that we have in life, all those evidences, God, they're evidences of your grace in our life. And I pray that as we receive those graces, that we would turn it into praise of your glorious grace. Father, thankful and reminded this morning that our faith, um, the hope that we have is not anchored in our circumstances, is not anchored in situations, is not anchored in seasons. It is anchored in Christ who is immovable, who is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What a comfort for us, God, in a life where things are consistently seeming to change. You never do. And that brings us great comfort. So um, alongside the prophet Habakkuk this morning, I just want to affirm that though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the field yield no food, if the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in our stalls, yet we will rejoice in the Lord our God. Your grace is evident in good and in bad. And I pray this morning as we turn to the preaching and the reading of your word that you would be magnified, you'd be glorified, you'd be honored in this church and in all the churches that are gathered this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you all. You can be seated. Coleman, thank you. Coleman Hayes, I'm going to call attention to him, but uh, we got a, a late text with some, some sick members uh, of our teams. He stepped in this morning. Now he's going to go teach our students in the dining room, so a little double duty. Um, speaking of sickness, I got to give you a disclaimer. Um, after Easter Sunday, I, I went home Monday and was like, hey, that, that was fun, but I am exhausted. Thinking, we just did three services for Easter, and then Tuesday, I was like more exhausted, and then Wednesday, it was like way worse, and I was like, uh-oh. So then I went and got swabbed, and they put that thing in the back of my brain, you know, and came down with the flu. So I've been, been battling that this week. So I'm a little fatigued. So I brought my water this morning. The only thing I have, only symptom I still have is like this, this hacking cough. Um, so I'm praying that it does not start while I'm preaching. First service went good, but I'm, I'm past that now. So we'll see what happens. So second disclaimer I have for you is um, Acts chapter 21. Okay, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 21. We're jumping back into the book of Acts after Easter last week. Um, but the disclaimer is this. We're going to largely be preaching through Acts 21 and Acts 22 today. So that's roughly, what, two chapters of text. Um, so that means I'm not going to read our text in its entirety. I'm going to read significant portions of our text. Um, but I'm also going to be summarizing uh, portions of our text as well today. So I pray that you have read along. If you're, if you're new with us or if you've you're been around a long time, you're just kind of slow to catch on. We've been preaching through the book of Acts, right, since August 7th. Um, so today we're in Acts 21 and 22, which means next week we will be in Acts 22b and Acts 23. So if you want to do your homework, come in a bit prepared, uh, feel free to read that and jump in. So let me, let me open up by telling you a little bit about Martin Luther. Okay, so in April of 1521, the Roman Catholic emperor had forbidden the sale of all of Martin Luther's books, had ordered the seizing of all of his writings, and in fact ordered them to all be burned. And then he was to stand trial in the city of Worms before the Roman Catholic Church. Um, one of his friends and confidants begged him not to go. said, Luther, if you go to Worms, you know what awaits you. You, you know it's going to be impending death. And to which he responded and said, I shall go. Though there, though there, there are as many devils as tiles on the roofs. He knew what was awaiting him, 
So he went to Worms, and on April the 16th, he stood before the emperor to stand trial. But before he gave defense of his teachings and of his writings, he requested and, and somehow received from the Roman Catholic emperor a, a night for prayer. He wanted to spend the night in prayer to prepare him for his defense. He later wrote about that prayer, that night of prayer, and, and this is the essence of what he prayed. Listen to this. He said, how frail and sensitive is the flesh of men, and the devil so powerful and wise and active through the men of this world. O thou, my God, my God, help me against the reason and the wisdom of this world. Thou must do it, thou alone. For this cause is not mine, but thine. O God, stand by me in the name of thy dear son Jesus, who shall be my protector and defender, yea, my mighty fortress. The next day, after that night in prayer, he stood before the mob and he stood before the emperor. And the emperor asked him, I ask you, Martin, answer candidly. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther responded, since you desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convicted by scripture, I do not accept the authority of popes and of councils, for they have always contradicted one another. But the word of God is never contradicted. I cannot and I will not recant anything. God help me. Amen. Ooh, you talk about some fortitude and some strength. Y'all, Luther refused to compromise on his faith and on the convictions of his faith. Although warned and begged by his friends and by his confidants, although facing impending and, and really uh, unescapable death, he refused to compromise his convictions and his faith. What gives someone the strength of fortitude to do that? Now, let me be clear. Myself and, and most likely you will never be in the position Martin Luther was in, right? You're, as it regards our text today, you're probably never going to be in the same position as the Apostle Paul, where you're standing before kings or emperors or the Roman Catholic Church being fearful of death and being pressured to compromise your faith. Like, you probably won't be in a situation like that. But is it, but is it not true that if you seek to follow Jesus, you're going to consistently face pressure? Like to face pressures to compromise. And y'all, it may not be dramatic like Luther's or like the Apostle Paul's, but let me tell you, a, a, a thousand small concessions will lead to a compromised life. It's just those small, subtle compromises that you make in your daily walk with God that lend itself to a fully compromised life later. So even though it's not dramatic, what I want us to do today is I want us to look at some of these pressures that we're going to be faced um, as Paul was faced, and, and how we can refuse to compromise. And these pressures may be morally, moral, they may be theological, but like Luther, like the Apostle Paul, we have examples to never compromise. So let me give it a little context. Before we jump into these pressures and dissect them, I gotta, I gotta get through our text. Two weeks ago, so before Easter, on April the 2nd, I told you that Paul is kind of on a farewell journey, right? His missionary endeavors as it regards the book of Acts is coming to a close. He's saying goodbye to all of these churches. And we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. So if you want to look there really quickly, this is Acts 20, verse 22. He tells the church in Ephesus, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, and he knows what's awaiting him there. So Acts chapter 21 actually opens up with him going to Jerusalem. He leaves Miletus, which is where he was in Acts 20, and he heads to Tyre. Look at verse 4. There in Tyre, having sought out the disciples, this is in our text, Acts 21 verse 4, we stayed there for seven days. 
And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but he would not be deterred. And all of his followers accompany him down to the port where he continues on his journey to Jerusalem. And look at verse 5. And kneeling down on the beach together, they prayed. From Tyre, he moves to the city of Caesarea. Look at verse 8. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. All right, look this way just for a second. This Agabus guy who who takes Paul's belt and he performs this prophetic symbol about what awaits him in Jerusalem is the same Agabus who in Acts chapter 11 had correctly predicted the drought that came over the land of Judea. This guy was prophetic and carried authority in his ministry. So when he took Paul's belt, Paul knew what that meant. Paul knew this is true, that what awaits me here in Jerusalem is not going to be good. Paul, once again, would not be deterred. Look at verse 13. Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So Paul, constantly facing this this foreboding, this warning, and constantly facing this pressure to not go, continues to move. And he finally gets into Jerusalem, and he begins to meet with the church in Jerusalem in our text led by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And y'all, the reaction and and the reception that Paul received by the church in Jerusalem is kind of mixed. First off, in verse 19, they begin to give glory to God for all that had been accomplished through Paul's ministry. All these Gentiles that had turned and put their faith in Christ, they began to give glory to God for it. But then they kind of switch gears a little bit. And the church in Jerusalem goes, hey, Paul, man, that's awesome. Like, so good that you've been fruitful among the Gentiles. And while you've been working out there, we've been working here. Here in Judea, we've seen thousands of Jews put their faith in Christ. But they've heard about you. Your reputation has kind of preceded you. And they've heard this rumor that you have taught all the Jews throughout the diaspora, all the Jews outside of Judea, to forsake and abandon the law of Moses. And these guys, all their followers of Jesus, they're zealous for the law of Moses. They still uphold the law of Moses. So what we're trying to say, Paul, is every time you come here, Something happens. So do this. Look at verse 22. They're like, man, your presence, putting us in a tight place here among these these Jewish guys zealous for the law. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So they tell Paul, we want you to prove to everybody how Jewish you are. We want you to really show everybody how, how pious you are towards the Mosaic law. So go on down to the temple and pay the very expensive vows of these four guys. And then you purify yourself ritualistically as well, which is Numbers 19, verse 12. If you had gone to Gentile lands as a Jew, you would come back into Judea, and you'd purify yourself by going to the temple. So tell them, do that. So Paul humbly and meekly obeys, but it didn't work. Sorry, I got a, got a call. No, nope, it's gone. Okay. He goes to the temple, and there in the temple, the Jews from Asia, probably Ephesus, see him. And let's pick back up on our text in verse 28. These Jews start crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man 
who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. All right, so here's the accusation against Paul. He's defiled the temple. He's brought a Gentile into the court of the Jews, y'all, which is a huge no-no. They accused him. The Roman tribune heard this commotion. This mob gets all stirred up, and, and the Romans were so smart, they, they put their barracks against the temple walls because they know in this city things get riled up right here around the temple. So this Roman tribune goes in and begins to rescue Paul, and things get really interesting. Look at verse 37. As they're taking Paul away to the barracks, Paul says, may I say something to you? And the Roman tribune says, you know Greek? And the reason he was so confused that he knew Greek, because he asked in verse 38, are you not the Egyptian? All right, here's the context. A couple months prior to this, there was an Egyptian that raised up about 10,000 followers who would move into the city of Jerusalem and begin assassinating Roman guards. This guy thought, we got him. This is the Egyptian. That Egyptian had escaped. They thought, we got this Egyptian. Then Paul asks in Greek, hey, can I say something to you? And Paul's like, no, 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 listen, I'm not Greek. Look at verse 39. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And the man lifts him. It blows my mind. Like this man has no reason to let Paul speak to this mob that just had previously wanted to kill him. But he lifts him. Look at verse 40. When he'd given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. All right, so in Acts chapter 22, we really begin to see Paul's speech. And I'm not going to read his entirety of the speech, but the first half of it, he's winning the crowd over. Like the crowd really begins to put their faith back in Paul. First, he speaks to him in Hebrew, which is the Aramaic language, the native language of Palestinian Jews. He tells them that he was born, reared, and educated a Jew. He tells them he was brought up in the city of Jerusalem. Tells them he was studying at the Pharisee's feet of Gamaliel. Tells them, and I was never a lawbreaker. In fact, more than anything, I've been a law enforcer. Reminds them of his previous life, how he had killed Christians and brought them before trial. But then he loses them. He begins to tell them about his vision of Jesus. How on the Damascus road he saw Jesus and it changed everything. Then he drops the hammer in verse 21. In Acts chapter 22, verse 21, he tells these Jews that this Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up until this point, y'all, the mob listened. At this point, when he said the G word, gone, over, no longer listening to him. Verse 22, then they said with their voices, Away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. So the Roman tribune steps in again, takes him into the barracks, and they want to know, who is this guy? Why has he roused up such a crowd? So they stretch him out to beat him because a Roman believes torture is going to bring out the truth. So they stretch him out, and Paul says in verse 25, hang on now, is this lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Pretty much saying, hey, I'm a citizen, and I've never had trial. And the man's dumbfounded. Because he doesn't know who he is and says, how are you a citizen? I paid for my citizenship with a great deal of money. And in verse 22, Paul says, yeah, but I'm a citizen by birth. So they withdrew from him. All right, so that's the conclusion of our text for today. And what I want us to see as Paul's making his way to Jerusalem is he is faced with great pressure. He is constantly pressured to compromise. 
to reject, to move away from his biblical faith and his biblical convictions. But he never did. So how? First thing I want us to do is look at these pressures. And the first pressure I see Paul facing is the pressure of presumption. I really don't know what else to say about it, like, like how to entitle it, but it's a pressure of presumption. Presumption is an attitude or a belief inferred as truth, but is in fact not certain or really known. To presume something means you take something that's like a probability and conclude that it's a hard tr- truth, right? It's a fact. So something that's actually just probable, you have concluded it is now fact. You know, on poor Paul, every step of his journey to Jerusalem, he was pressured by presumption. The Holy Spirit was testifying in every city. In Miletus, he was going to be afflicted and imprisoned. In Tyre, we see in Acts 21.4, the disciples were urging them not to go. In 21.11, in Caesarea, Agabus did the whole belt thing. Every city, he's facing this foreboding of what awaits him in Jerusalem. But here's where the presumption comes in. How did his companions interpret the Spirit's warning? You can't, you can't go to Jerusalem. God doesn't want you to go to Jerusalem. You should not go to Jerusalem. They began to presume. They began to interpret the Spirit's warning out of presumption. But the Spirit was just warning Paul to prepare him, not to divert him. But they interpreted the Spirit's warning out of their own presumption. Y'all, I can hear it now. And, and I don't, like, hate on them for doing this. I probably would have done the same. Their love for Paul was pure. They, they just wanted to preserve Paul's life. They kept hearing over and over what's awaits him, what awaits him. It's just that they weren't in tune with God's ultimate purposes. Well, before we moved to the mission field, we, we heard presumption all the time. People would say, well, there's a lot of work for you to do here, too. Wouldn't God want you to stay here? I mean, are you going to presume to know the mind of God here? Or, how about this one? Andrew, you know the safest place for you to be is in the center of God's glory. You ever heard that one? How'd that work out for Jesus? How about his apostles? Any of us, really. I can hear him telling Paul, Paul, God wants you to be saved. Paul, God wants you to be fruitful. Look how God has used you. How could he ever use you in, in, in a prison? How could he ever use you when he cut your life short? No, 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 stay alive. God wants to use you. How often do we interpret things out of presumption? We begin to speak on behalf of God instead of letting him speak on behalf of himself. Even in the face of this presumption, Paul refused to compromise. And y'all, we're all going to face this type of presumption. If you seek to follow Jesus, you're going to face presumption. Sometimes that presumption is going to come internally. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies because you will step into compromise just because you justify your own desires. How easy is that for us to do, right? Just to justify our own desires. Take, take this example of, of locker room talk. All right, man, I'm going to talk to you for a second. You're at your job. Locker room talk starts to happen. You know what I'm talking about. Conversation is beginning to slip into a place that's no longer edifying or glorifying to God. And you know, I probably need to step away from this. I probably don't need to engage in this, but then you start to reason with yourself. Well, God wants me to be the church. Andrew says that every Sunday, I got to be the church. So I need to engage here. I need to stay in here and build relationship with these guys so that they don't see me as just some holier-than-thou person. How often do we do something like that? So we end up taking a step with our own mouth that actually leads us to sin. We've compromised our faith because we've justified and presumed for ourselves. What about, I'm going to talk to the men again. Sorry, I'm hanging on you guys for a little bit today. The temptation of workaholism, right? Overworking yourself, finding your identity and your value and the things that you do. How easy is it for us to justify that? 
for us to say things like, well, I mean, I need to be a good steward, don't I? God's given me this job. I want to steward it well. Or I need to be the provider of my family. My kids need me to do this. And it's so easy for us to reason that and to presume that all the while we're moving away from the biblical conviction of what God's called us to as husbands or as fathers or any other role and responsibility God's put into our life. It's so easy for us to presume internally, right? Not even from the outside, just from the inside. Let me say something externally really quickly. The pressure of presumption externally is rapidly rising in our culture. I know I harp on this a lot. Y'all, it's coming. You know it, right? You feel it. It's, it's coming. Jesus said it really clearly. In this world, you're going to have a lot of trials and tribulations. To follow Jesus, you know what Jesus called it? A narrow road. It is going to be hard to follow him. External pressures are going to constantly rise to get you to compromise your faith. We hear it all the time within the church. We hear people say this all the time. God is love, Christian. You're supposed to be loving. And loving means fill in the blank. Right? We presume to define love with how the world tends to define love when God's already defined love. Love looks like on the cross. And, and man, Christ wasn't a pushover. He wasn't just accepting of things. He would call out sin, but he'd be willing to die for it. Love is defined biblically, but we're going to continue to be pressured to define the qualities of a Christian by the way the world defines it, not by the way the Bible defines it. I was encouraging a brother just the other day. Uh, uh, he's struggling in his marriage, and I said, man, you need to live and love your wife in an understanding way so that your prayer life isn't hindered. And the response was, that doesn't sound like the God that I know. You ever heard that phrase? Y'all hear it all the time. That just doesn't sound like the God that I know. And I'm like, whoa. Be careful not to presume on the mind of God because 1 Peter 3, 7 says live with your wife in an understanding way so that your prayer would not be hindered. It's just in Scripture. But yet we're so quick to define God for ourselves when really not accepting what he has defined himself as. We've got to be careful, even within the church, not to presume the will of God when he's already spoken it. So Paul's companions, y'all, they presumed. Verse 12 of Acts 21. When they heard all of these forebodings, we and the people there urged him not to go. Again, their presumption was not in their love for Paul. Their presumption was in their interpretation. They interpreted God's revealings to prepare Paul as his desire to divert Paul. But we all know, as we continue to see throughout this book, that this was God's will. God wanted and had called Paul to Rome because he was to testify before uh, kings and before emperors. So pressure of presumption. The second one I see is the pressure for comfort. This one just stands out for me. Like what would you do if Agabus just grabs your belt, you know, hog ties you and says, this is what's going to happen to you if you keep going forward. That feel good? No, like that, that would be horrible. You know, I'd, if you're human, you would think I will do anything to get out of this mess. And it's just so natural for us to avoid anything that is uncomfortable. And as it regards you all, the pursuit of comfort, the pressure to comfortize your life is only going to continue to increase. And when it comes to American culture, we are swimming upstream here. This is countercultural. To follow a Christ that calls you to a life of discomfort is countercultural to the comfort we're in. Because our culture, y'all, is, is hardwired to make this question the center of everything. What am I going to get out of this? Our culture is hardwired to say, does that actually make me happy? We only add things or subtract things in our life if it adds to our pleasure, if it adds to our comfort. But the things that we're called to are rarely comfortable. Let me give you an example. 
Now, I'm not talking about intermis- intermittent here. Um, when's the last time you fasted? <laughs> that's, that's funny. We don't fast. Why don't we not fast? Because it hurts. It's horrible. Usually, when I, I fast to about 12.01 p.m., and I'm like, God's good. He's gracious. And I start eating. And what do I eat? Carbs. Because it's comforting. But we don't want to engage these things that God has called us to because it doesn't make us happy. It doesn't make us comfortable. But there's so much in the Christian life that is actually a calling to being uncomfortable. Cutting your right hand off when you sin. Comfortable or uncomfortable? Forgiving those that hurt you. Comfortable or uncomfortable? Walking that narrow road. Disciplining your children. Carrying your cross. Comfortable or uncomfortable? Y'all, Paul was in a position where he could have really compromised here. What awaited him was very uncomfortable, but he didn't. He continued to follow Christ. Let me give you one more. We're pressured to compromise our faith because we want to be accepted. Right? We fear rejection. Like, I'm pretty introverted, but I still care to be liked. Like, isn't that only our all hardwired to do that? Like, we all want to be liked. We all want to belong. We all want to be accepted. And one of the reasons we are pressured to compromise our faith because we fear rejection. My oldest son, who will be in fourth grade next year, so about two years ago, before we moved here, he uh, went into a follow class at our previous church. Okay, this follow class was for kids who were expressing interest in being baptized. They wanted to learn what it looked like to follow Jesus, which is the second graders and above. And he entered this class, and y'all, the, the children's pastor did su- such a fantastic job. One of the lessons on Sunday was to teach them the cost of discipleship, what it looks like to pick up a cross and to follow, to, to count things as lost, to follow Christ. And he set up this illustration. He went, before the class began, he went through the kids' building, and he ta- told all the kids' teachers, when you see me in my class coming, here's what I want you to do. You see us come through the hallway, I want you to run to the hallway and start pointing and laughing. Okay? Then he went back to his follow class and began to teach them about following Jesus, about what it looks like to be rejected for the name of Jesus. He said, I want to illustrate this. Let's play follow the leader. When I stand up, you stand up. When I sit down, you, stand, you sit down. When I spin in a circle, you spin in a circle. So they're having a blast doing that in the classroom. Well, then they move into the hallway. He's skipping down the hallway. He's walking backwards down the hallway. Everybody's having a blast, and all of a sudden, the hallway starts to fill up with kids. And those kids start pointing, and they start laughing. Y'all know what happened? Slowly but surely, every one of those kids stopped following the leader. Don't we do that all the time? Like, isn't that true for every one of us? The fear of rejection, that peer pressure. We take our eyes off of Jesus. We put them horizontally on our peers, and we immediately compromise our faith and our convictions. Such a good example. I'm so thankful for the investment that man made into my kids' lives. But y'all, Paul didn't compromise, even though he could have. In that moment, when the mob is screaming for his head, Paul, the Pharisee, could have given such a pro-Israel speech, he could have won them all over. But he didn't. He still chose to preach the gospel. How often, y'all, do we bow to the pressure of acceptance? I think so many of these small concessions we make in our life is, is just this desire to fit in, just this desire to belong. But let me ask you parents in the room, how often are you making concessions so that your kids fit in? Oh, that's painful. Like that, like let's get really honest. Like I want my kids to be popular. I want them to be accepted. I want them to have friends. I want them to be successful. How often are you as a parent tempted 
to give some things to your kids that you know you don't need to give them, but all their friends have it. Everybody else is doing that. So you give them maybe the latest technology. And what ends up happening? Without oversight, without some accountability, you've actually led your child to compromise the biblical faith you're trying to instill in them just to give in to what their friends have done. Y'all, it's so easy. It's so hard. Paul would say that if we bow to this pressure, we conform to the patterns of this world. But don't conform to the patterns of this world. Paul says be transformed by the renewal of your minds. For the next 15 minutes, let me answer the question, how? How? When we face this pressure of presumption, this pressure of comfort, this pressure of acceptance, how do we not conform to it? How do we refuse to compromise? And y'all, as as cliche as it may sound, the answer is simply in our Sunday school answer, Jesus. The only way we can be strong enough not to compromise is to follow Jesus. To put our eyes, just like in that follow class for my son, to put our eyes on the leader and not to take your eyes off of it. Because what's crazy is that this journey motif of Paul is so reminiscent of the journey motif of Christ. When you look at Jesus setting his face on Jerusalem and moving towards the last few days of his life, and Paul setting his face on Jerusalem and moving on towards the last few days of his life, it's eerie how similar they are. In fact, I believe it's intentional. Not just Luke recording it, I believe it's intentional that Paul was going, hey, Jesus did it, I'm just going to follow what Jesus did. I'm just going to put my eyes on Jesus. Let me give you some examples. The same forebodings that Paul faced marked Jesus' journeys. The same resolve and fortitude to go, even though he knew what awaits him, marked Jesus' journeys. The same presumption on the part of his disciples marked Jesus' journeys. It was the same ending. It was in Jerusalem that Jesus was arrested and executed. And it was in Jerusalem that Paul was arrested, his life put in jeopardy, yet he was ultimately executed in Rome. And as we have seen from Paul's life, I pray that you've seen this in Acts 9. Paul was dead set on one thing in his life, following Jesus. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Anybody memorize that yet? I'm going to bring it up again. Acts 20, verse 24. I'm going to read it. If you're looking for a verse to memorize, this is it. Paul said, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from Jesus. Let me cough. (coughs) Excuse me. Paul had left everything to follow Christ. The only thing that mattered in Paul's life was his lasered gaze on the person of Jesus Christ. So let me give you two ways that Jesus was prepared to face this pressure. And the same two ways that Paul was prepared to face this pressure. And the same two ways that Luther was prepared to face these pressures. And the same two ways, you guessed it, that we can all be prepared to face these pressures, okay? The first one is this. We have to be prepared by knowing God's purposes, prepared with purposes. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus frequently spoke of why he came, meaning he knew his purpose. Let me give you one poignant example in Matthew chapter 16. In verse 21, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. On the third day, be raised Poor Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. Over and over, Jesus made it clear, I'm going to Jerusalem, and this is what awaits me in Jerusalem. But immediately, as soon as he states his purpose, he faces this pressure of presumption. Far be it from you, Lord. That's not the way that God wants to bring his kingdom in. Presuming on behalf of Jesus, but Jesus refused to compromise. 
Y'all, Jesus knew his purpose. Jesus knew why he had came. And much like Jesus, since his conversion, Paul knew what he was about. On Acts, on that Damascus road in Acts chapter 9, Paul just wasn't converted. He was commissioned. In the same moment, let me go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 15. God spoke clearly to Ananias and said this about Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This verse, Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, is actually the thesis for the remainder of this book. All we're going to see at the end, towards the end of this book is Paul standing trial before kings, before Gentiles, and before Jews, showing how much he must suffer for the sake of God's name. Paul was confident in his purpose. Paul knew what he came to do, and that preparation gave him the strength to not compromise. But he also had a, a deeper understanding of God's purpose. Not, a, not just his vocation, like not just what he was called to do, but like the why behind it. Okay, Let me tell you about this. Those, that mob that was standing before him, what was his accusation against Paul? You remember? He had brought Trophimus, right, into the court of the Jews. He had brought a Gentile into the temple. Huge no-no. In fact, archaeology has revealed a, a literal wall, a stone wall, that stood between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. And the inscriptions on this wall that has been recovered read this, no foreigners permitted by penalty of death. It was death to be able to bring a Gentile into the court of the Jews. But Paul, even facing all this pressure, continued to preach gospel for the Gentiles. Because in Ephesians 2.14, we read this, Jesus Christ is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You know what Paul's referencing there? The wall of the temple. The wall that would keep the Gentiles from the proverbial presence of God. Paul knew the purpose of God was to send Jesus to break that wall down and he would preach no other gospel. Paul was confident in the purposes of God. Resolved to refuse to compromise. So church, let me ask you, like, are you? Like, are you aware of the purposes of God? And, and all, I'm not talking about vocationally. I'm not talking about us banging our head up against the wall going, God, what do you want me to do in my life? You know? I'm saying daily. Wherever you live. Wherever you work, whatever you do, do you know what God expects of you? Do you know what he wants of you, what his purposes are for you? And y'all, it's pretty simple. I hope you've heard this a thousand times since you've been coming to our church. But the way to know the will of God is to familiarize yourself with the word of God. Pretty simple. Then the way to know the will of God is to familiarize yourself with the word of God. And the word of God, according to 2 Timothy 3, is breathed out by God. This is the doctrine of inspiration. That the Bible was penned by men, but ultimately inspired by the Holy Spirit. The scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You want to be equipped for every good work? Re resist the pressure of, of, of compromise? Put the word of God in your heart. Put it in your mind. And the word of God used by the spirit of God will keep you from compromise. So, businessman or woman, you start facing that latest loophole to get out of those taxes that you know by the conviction of your spirit is probably illegal, but everybody else is doing it. And everybody else is getting away with it. All of a sudden, the word of God used by the spirit of God will remind you, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. It will remind you of Mark chapter 12. 
Or when you're pressured to choose acceptance over conviction, you can be reminded of texts like John chapter 12. Y'all listen to this text. John 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they would never confess him. So they would not be put out of the synagogue because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is a scripture that the Holy Spirit has burned into my heart about three weeks after I got saved. So I got saved when I was 18. Moved to a public university. I won't tell you which one. Massive. They're back-to-back national champions, okay? <laughs> Went to the University of Georgia. I'd been a Christian for about two weeks. And, and my first week of classes was like what you parents fear your first week of classes will be for your Christian son or daughter. I was in an intro to religion class. I was sitting on the back row, probably 300 people in the classroom. And the professor stood up, true story, Coleman can tell you about it because he knows this professor, stood up and says, hey, Christians, I'm not here to tell you God's not real, but God is not real. And he will not do anything when I do this. He proceeded to crow hop and throw his Bible across the room, hit the wall, and fell down to the floor. Y'all, I had been a Christian for about two weeks. Three weeks prior to that, I had been put in handcuffs for fighting. One of the things God used to lead me to Christ, okay? So I'm real raw. Not very polished. Holiness really wasn't a thing yet, but I was on fire for Jesus. So when he threw that Bible, I stood up and was like, let's call fire down. That can't happen. I know that's wrong. I was fired up about it. But then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm standing up. So I sat down immediately. (laughs) And I was sitting next to all these football players. And as soon as I sat down, the Holy Spirit started saying to me, go pick it up. Go pick it up. Go pick it up. Firm, but gentle, kept saying, go pick it up. And I said, you are out of your omnipotent mind. And he kept saying, go pick it up. Finally, I stood up, and one of the football players looked at me and said, what are you doing? I was like, nothing. Sat back down. Go pick it up. Pressure on me. Just go pick it up. Go pick it up. Finally, a tear started rolling down my face. And to my dismay, the football player saw it. Bro, are you crying? Yes. Leave me alone. I'm in a moment. Go pick it up. Finally, I said, in my heart, God, I'm not going to do it. Ask somebody else. And as soon as I resolved to compromise, that feeling left me. The professor himself walked over and picked it up. I was so undone. Picked up my bag and I left the classroom and broke in the hallway. And I resolved in that moment, God, I do never want to feel this again. I never want to feel this again. And later that night, my Bible reading plan that my mentor had given me was John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many refused to believe in him. Refused to confess him. Why? Because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Boy, that was true for me. And y'all, there's good news to that. I don't have time to tell you, but that professor ended up putting his faith in Christ later that year. Awesome. Cool story. God can work even in spite of my disobedience, okay? But man, I don't ever want to feel that again. That pressure to be accepted, the only way we can know is what God expects of us. And when you get his word into your heart, the Holy Spirit will remind you. You'll be prepared in those moments to not to compromise. Let me quickly give you one more. Jesus, Paul, Luther, us, we can all be prepared through the power of prayer. As Jesus was going into Jerusalem, as he entered Jerusalem, he knew what awaited him. He took one final escape outside the city walls to the Mount of Olives. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Does it not blow your mind that Jesus Christ prayed that? He knew what he was about. At age 12, he told everybody, I'm about my father's business. He knew why he had to come. But even though he was willing and even though he knew, that doesn't mean it's going to translate into action. It doesn't mean you may have the strength to actually see it through that you know what you're called to. You've got to be prepared. And Jesus prepared himself with prayer, and he wanted his disciples to be prepared. He went to his disciples in verse 40, and he saw them sleeping. He said to Peter, could you not watch with me for one hour? Verse 41, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let me say it this way. Watch and pray that you may not enter into compromise. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. Church, don't you know that's true? Like, you may be willing to follow Jesus. Your spirit may be on fire to follow Jesus, but how do you know you're going to be willing to follow through in that moment of pressure? You've got to be prepared. Your flesh may be weak, and the only way to overcome that flesh is to sow into your spirit through prayer. The weakness of our flesh will often overpower the willfulness of your spiritual desires. Do you hear that? The strength of your flesh will often overpower the willful desires of your spirit. That's why we have got to feed our spirit. Feed it. Feed it. Feed it. I didn't have time to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. St. Augustine has this amazing metaphor of what it looks like to feed your spirit. It's not very PG, but he said, he said this. If I was a dog fighter, professional dog fighter, okay? This is St. Augustine, not Michael Vick, not me, okay? He says, if I was a professional dog fighter and I had two dogs, dog A and dog B, and I was going to fight them at the end of the month, and I wanted dog A to win, and I want dog B to lose, what would I do? I would feed dog A, I would train dog A, and I would starve dog B. So it's the same with your flesh, the same with your spirit. You want your spirit to win? Feed it, train it, discipline it. You want your flesh to lose? Starve it. It's really not complicated, but it takes a lot of discipline. It's going to take a lot of work. So we have to be prepared, and we're prepared through prayer. Y'all, it's what Paul did. In Acts chapter 20, when the Spirit was testifying in every city, he gathered uh, the, the, the elders of Ephesus, and he knelt down, and he prayed. In Caesarea, when Agabus did his whole thing, they kneeled down on the beach, and they prayed. Prayer is the preparation to resist pressure of compromise. Luther, the night before his famous statement to the emperor, requested a night in prayer. Thou must do it, is what he prayed. Thou alone, for this cause is not mine, but thine. Prayer prepares us, church. Prayer prepares us. The only way, and I'll conclude with this, to resist these pressures and refuse to compromise is to keep our eyes on Jesus. Just do what Jesus did. Know your purpose. Know what he's asked of you. Hide this thing in your heart and prepare through prayer. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who in every respect has been tempted, has been pressured as we are, yet without sin. Y'all, we have Jesus. You have Jesus' example. You have Jesus next to you. You have Jesus within you. A few years after Luther's bold refusal, he, he reflected on that night of prayer, and he actually penned a pretty famous hymn called A Mighty Fortress of Our God based on that night. I'll read one of the choruses of that, um, that hymn, and then, and then I'll pray for us. Luther writes, 
A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe, and his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. But did we in our strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask, who may that be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That if we, if we confide in our own strength, we, our striving will be losing. If we try to resist these pressures by our own willpower, our striving will be losing. We need your grace. We want you by our side, the man of God's own choosing. Christ, help us to follow you. Help us to put our eyes onto you. Help us to feed our spirit and to starve our flesh. Help us to fill our mind and our hearts with your word so we can be prepared to resist these pressures and give us discernment. Father, these, these pressures are so subtle. They're so hard to see. Give us discernment as to what they are. Help us to be near to you, and Holy Spirit, convict us when we're near them. And give us the strength to oppose them. Help us to refuse to compromise. God, we want to be a church. We want to be people who don't just follow you in word only. We, we want to be people who follow you with action. Who aren't afraid to confess you. Who aren't afraid to live lives on fire for Jesus Christ. But we know, God, that we can't do it on our own. So I pray for us. Pray for that discernment. Pray for that strength. Give us the power to refuse compromise. In Jesus' name, amen.